Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Oh, yeah. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Ouch. <laughs> and that guy sitting right over there doesn't have bunny ears on today. This is Mark C.G. Boyer, fact-checker and co-host... I got a great show for you today on the phone. Frank C. Gerardo Jr., brilliant true crime author, award-winning journalist, and co-author with Burl Bear on a couple of books. Hello, Frank. Hey, I got to tell you, I, I got a message just as we were going on the air. I thought maybe it was from you. I opened it up and it says, Hi, I'm Jana. Nice to meet you. I'm looking for the other half of my life. Someone who can accompany me throughout my life. I'm 36 years old and single. I like polite men. If you're very similar to me, please leave me a WhatsApp message now. I believe we can be each other's life partners. We can share each other's lives and understand each other better. My WhatsApp all number... The, all, all through the magic of a text message. Yeah. It's like a match. Yeah. How did she get my number and... Um, I, I apologize, Burl. I sent it to the wrong person. Oh, thanks a lot. I get I get these every so often, and occasionally I'll respond to them. And after about three messages, they say they love me. And then I say, "Okay, how many weeks from now is your uncle kidnapped in Malaysia, and you desperately need money?" <laughs> Which is usually yeah, exactly. There's a whole, there's a, you know, there's a whole genre of Reddit where people string those those message uh, those text messages out for you know page after page and it gets wild and hilarious <laughs> some of the things that that they you know get the other side to admit it's amazing and there, yeah. there's people who fall for it and send these people money and then I don't know if their uh, father or uncle is ever rescued from Malaysia or not <laughs> well you know a very common one is the one off um, uh, hi I'm your you know this is your in air quotes, this is your grandchild. Um, I I screwed up, and I'm I'm in Mexico, and I need bail money. Yeah, uh, to get my ass out of this mess. Mark, that happened to my mom. Speaking of cons, you are probably an expert, or you are undoubtedly the expert. One of the biggest murderous con jobs in the history of America, and that this guy with more. More names than Zoran Jasek, who had a thousand aliases. <laughs> this guy. Love that segue. That was a great segue. Yes, yeah, I'm. I'm an expert in the esoterica that is Clark Rockefeller. Now, how in the world did you happen to become the world's leading expert on the man with too many fake names and too many dead bodies? Uh, you know, all because I happened to be a police reporter back in 1994 and went to, um, you know, a, what, not routine, but, you know, like a, a, a case where a body had been dug up in a backyard in a wealthy community just outside of Los Angeles. And, um, you know, that led me to you know, trying to figure out, like, who was the body, how did the body get there? And, and then that led to, you know, um, discovering that there was a massive con that had taken place over decades uh, involving people um, 
you know, from coast to coast uh, in the United States. It's another thing to be a murderer. I mean, just thousands or hundreds of thousands of con men or millions, but they don't usually murder people. They usually just steal their money. I mean, I think that's what makes this story so fun to write about, um, you know, because there, because there is a murder and there's a, there's a body and there's a, you know, there, there's this whole idea of, you know, trying to appropriate somebody's identity or become a new identity. And um, it's almost like, you know, prior to the murder, the man who became Clark Rockefeller uh, you know, was practicing changing identity and morphing into, you know, the what he wanted to be based on his audience. So it was a, a question of survival, you know, honing his survival instinct by becoming, you know, uh, basically new people almost at the drop of a dime. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, it's not, he probably would have gotten away with this. Uh, this murder, um, except that he was so enamored with his daughter and figured that, you know, somehow he could take her hostage or kidnap her that, um, you know, he made the fatal mistake that ended up uh, resulting in his arrest and the unraveling of this decades-long con. Uh, Um, Mark uh, has a question here for you. Um, I've noticed uh, over my time, uh, and then, of course, in literature and uh, in entertainment, that it's always the, the sense of uh, inf- infallibility, of, on a, you know, no one's going to catch me after all this Criminal time. pride is the official title of that. Ah, and then it's that, it's at that moment that the mistake gets made. Well, this guy makes uh, several strange, I mean, here's, here's something that, Tell me how this relates to this guy's thought process. He was hired at one time by a brokerage firm. He went to work with them on the computers. He was fired when it was discovered that his social security number that he gave them belonged to serial killer David Berkowitz. And nobody ever checked. And I think that goes to the heart of, um, you know, this whole story, and that is, like he presented himself so believably and put himself into situations where, um, you know, was just, there was a suspension of credulity uh, or incredulity uh, and people just believed him, you know, um, when it, so, so I just, I'll just go back a little bit. This is, you know, this guy was a, like a kid that grew up in Germany post-war um, you know, I guess maybe early Gen X, baby boomer, probably. And, you know, his entire life until he was a teenager, he had, he's fixated on America and the United States. And um, he met, a, a, his name was Christian Gerhardt's writer, a very German name. He grew up in Bavaria. Um, at about 17, he met an American couple uh, who were, you know, searching for their roots in Bavaria and, um, you know, was able to extract from them enough information that, you know, three months later he's coming to the United States and naming them as his sponsor. Oh, how... 78. 
you know, I'm sure there's databases and all this stuff, but I don't think that society was as sophisticated as it is now. You know, it, I mean, I guess in, in, I mean, all you have to do is look at discos, right? Like, <laughs> you know, that was the disco era. That's not super sophisticated. Flashing lights and, and bumping, uh, you know, bass drums and, and you know, you, you got a whole movement. Um, and so, you know, as a result, he gets over here. He's, he's decides, you know, maybe Gerhardt's Rider isn't such a great, you know, name to have in America where everybody's named Mike Smith or, or Ed Jones. Mm-hmm. And he becomes uh, Christian uh, Chichester and Christopher <laughs> Chichester. Which, you know, that now that, that name, as you know, is related to Sir Francis Chichester, the, the famous world explorer. Mm-hmm. And in California, in this wealthy community, that name had some cachet because it also sort of signified that, you know, perhaps this guy had some connection to royalty. When he, and when he realized that the idea that they may be talking to somebody of royal blood, especially Americans, he, he prayed on that. You know, he, he printed up business cards that said he was the 13th baronet of Chichester. <laughs> Sounds like a cookie. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not, you know what? Pepperidge Farm should come out with the 13th baronet. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a Keebler. They're, they're the ones. The <laughs> Keebler, elves. yeah. With the elves. Yeah. 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 Uh, it would be good. But he gets away <laughs> with this. I mean, he's obviously not stupid. I mean, maybe stupid. But intellectually, he has some brains, twisted as it may be, to pull this off. Yeah, you know, some people are good at math. Some people are good at English. Some people are, you know, are are good at sales. This guy, this guy, I think, was really good. Uh, like, had a has a built-in understanding of human psychology. You know, and um, and instead of like, you know, taking taking that strength or superpower and turning it into something for good, he was, he used it to manipulate people. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've had two people in my life that could do the proverbial, uh, ice to an Eskimo sale. My father was one. Um, he was just, he was truly amazing. Um, he, he sold all kinds of, you know, side items like Melba toast. Melba toast. Melba toast. Yeah, he whatever he could sell, and we were at the Encino Gelson's, and he was informed that they weren't going to carry Rye Crisp and the Melba toast anymore. And uh, Bernie Gelson happened to be there. Uh, I think I was uh, seven or eight, and and a half an hour later, my father had twice the space on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Some that people he had before. just gifted that way. Yeah. But you see, he used it, but your dad, you know, had that gift, and he used it to, you know, advance his career and, you know, and keep his family afloat. Yes, yeah, he was, it was never any malice behind any of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, Chris wasn't just, just wasn't wired in that way. You know, I think he, he was wired to see the world as something that, you know, is a pie 
And, you he know, rather his... than putting ingredients into the pie, he was slicing it up and making sure that he got a, a big slice of it. Yeah, well, yeah. He got a big slice of his life is going to be in prison for the rest of it. Well, that's yeah. never a concern to, to individuals like this. At least, at no. First. I I think that you guys already pointed this out. That sort of that criminal arrogance, right? A girl had a better because uh, someone can plan. Say you're a bank robber, and you plan your first bank robbery right down to nth detail, and it works. And you keep doing that. But after a few of them, you stop thinking that the result is because of your intricate planning. You just think it's inherently you, and so you stop doing the great planning. And just assume you're going to be successful. And that's when they get caught. Yeah. But uh, say, Frank, yeah. say if you agree with this or not. <clears throat> uh, humans are mainly trusting. You, pe- most people that. don't don't go uh, when they meet somebody and, and uh, let's go and do a background check on this person. So if somebody comes up to you and says, hi, my name... Uh, my name is Claire Rockefeller. I'm, you know, somewhere distant with the Rockefellers. And you go, oh, that's nice. Nice to meet you. And yeah. that, that's as far as it would go. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's able, people are able to get away with these cons, because suspicion is not the first thing uh, people think of. Until Google. Well... Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, Mark. In general, I agree with you. You know, you don't you don't Google everybody that you run into. No. But um, it, it, I think that you know, at the point where somebody's telling you they're, a, you know, a scion of royalty or distantly related to the Rockefeller family or, um, you know, somehow connected to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, that um, you you buy it until like there's. I think that. We also have a part of our nature that, while trusting, is, is we have another part of human nature that is skeptical. Well, that's self-preservation. Um, that, yeah, self-preservation. Self, right, survival instinct. And, um, you know, maybe it's not triggered on a first meeting, but, um, you know, it might be triggered on a second or a third. I mean, this guy's wife, was he was married to a woman who was a, an executive at McKinsey, and she trusted him. She believed him. You know? They had a kid? They had a kid. And and she trusted and believed him right up until the time she could Google him. Well, and, he, became, uh, he became... He he left being the ideal partner and became abusive and controlling. Right. And that's a huge mistake. If he had just left her alone and just played... A loving husband, she wouldn't have been suspicious. Well, it's like this. Well, I don't know. You know, Mark, that's a great. I don't know because I, that's a great. I, I like that take. I really do. But let, I'm going to like. Add, let me add just a little bit to that because you know, while he, whatever he is abusive, or or if he goes the other route, he's not. He's still telling her that he's the. You know, eventually going to inherit you know, millions of, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and that, you know, he's the subject um, for the plaintiff in a lawsuit that's going to net him millions more. And, uh, you know, McKinsey VP or consultant or director or not, 
you're not, you know, even if you're making a million dollar salary, it's, it doesn't support the lifestyle of somebody who wants to pretend they're a hundred millionaire. Right. Uh, yeah. Sooner or later, it's not going to come true. Right. And you, and he's going to have to explain it. And I really think that actually, you know, that, that, that whole like narrative that he was laying out combined with the abusiveness, you know, leads her to drop her trust and try to figure out how to, how to get out of it. And, you know, this kind of relationship is, is interesting too, because uh, he isolated her from other people who might, you know, be able to tell her like, Hey, this relationship sucks or, you know, your husband's full of, full of crap. Um, so, you know, he, I think he strang that out pretty, pretty, pretty long time. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Mark, maybe he could have gone longer if he was loving, but eventually as Burl, you know, points out, he's going to have to, he's going to have to come up with some dough. And everyone out there listening to us, that, uh, that particular point is a huge red flag. If the person in your life tries to keep you from communicating with family, friends, colleagues, uh, that's a huge red flag that something seriously is wrong. Yeah, also, if they punch you in the face a lot. Well, yeah. Yeah, bro. <laughs> I don't want to laugh at that, but I just, I just did. Well, you know, as, as Sam Kennison said, he doesn't contone it, but he understands how Mr. Hand can become Mr. Fist. <laughs> yeah, don't condone it. I, mean, I, I, I think the world was so deprived of Sam Kennison. Uh, oh. <laughs> the guy was, uh, I mean, a genius. Yes. And yet I wonder what, how a guy like Sam Kinison would survive in a, in a world of cancellation. Um, he would be fine because he didn't care. And also oh, yeah. I, I have worked with Sam and he was one of the nicest guys you could ever hope to meet. Uh, um, Frank, did you ever meet, uh, Howard Lapidus, one of our regulars here? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, so Howard was his manager for a good period of time. I didn't know that. And uh, fabulous stories about him sober and him not sober. <laughs> and which is why eventually Howard walked away, because he couldn't keep him sober. Huh. And, uh, you know, just like Robert Schimmel, uh, another favorite comedian of mine who was right. seriously a blue comedian. Um. You know, he beats cancer, uh, a cancer that most people don't beat. He beats it. And he dies in a car crash like uh, Sam does. Yeah. Horrible. I, I, I mean, yeah, you know, the tragedy of comedy. Yeah, well, that's actually, that's actually uh, a, a serial TV show. Oh, yeah, The Dark Side dark, of Comedy. Dark Side yeah, of. Yeah. Yeah. We have a yeah. whole episode about Sam. Anyway, getting back to this jerk, not you, meaning brother, <laughs> brother Clark Rockefeller, uh, who was in prison with someone we're writing about, uh, after San Quentin, for good reason. Now, you said that you first got into this because of the fact that they found these bones uh, believed to belong to this Jonathan uh, Solis. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, buried, yeah, yeah, John, John Solis. Yeah. Was buried in the backyard of uh, this family's property. The bones matched the general description, but being as he's adopted, they didn't have the DNA. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, pretty, I guess, you know, 94 DNA wasn't super, um, 
relevant really wasn't until after the OJ case. Dental Times would identify people based on dental records. Mm -hmm. And the, here's a weird fact. There were no dental records uh, that they could match up anywhere between, um, you know, a dentist in the, in the region and the missing guy, John Sowers. So um, the identity of these bones was always kind of an assumed thing, right? Well, it must be John Sowers because he went missing and these are the clothes that he wore. Um, and, uh, and the thing is, is that these bo this body didn't, you know, turn up these bones, by the way, a body that had been trisected and cut into three. Yeah, that I was just going to mention that, that he'd been struck in the head two times with a rounded blunt object and then stabbed six times and then cut into three pieces, three parts. Yeah. Now, that shows some dedication to the project right there. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, you know, you got to get rid of it somehow, right? Um, but but he keeps he, the guy's truck. How stupid is that? He but, takes the guy's truck, and he still has it far but, later. But it's, so, so, I mean, you got to go back, right? So, first of all, the body was discovered in 1994, but the crime happened in 1985. So you have this nine-year gap, and and initially, John and his wife Linda went missing. That's that's kind of like the um, you know ten-minute mark, and this couple goes missing. Right. And um, when they when they do, the people that could report them missing they don't don't address that delays a police investigation by weeks. Wasn't there and, postcards? Uh, they, they were posed, they, they actually, uh, many people, including some of Linda's family and her friends, received postcards from Paris that said, oh, hey, dead. John and I are, you know, on this trip, and we were going to go to New York, but we ended up in Paris, you know, implying all's well, and, you know, oh, we made a weird little mistake, but, you know, here we are. And, uh, you know, the handwriting was Linda's handwriting, so... You know, police don't, you know, they they look at this as a missing persons case, but they also say, well, these are adults. Adults in, you know, in that time could disappear for weeks or months and, you know. Everything was fine. Not like there were cell phones or, or air tags or any way to track them. So, so they disappear. Um, and the thing is, is that Chichester uh, didn't disappear. He's living in the house. Uh, you know, um, where he lived with this couple and eventually he takes off. And when he does, he's driving John's truck. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, suspicious as heck, but you know, he takes the truck across the country, um, changes identities, goes to work as a, you know, as a day trader in, um, in the bond market and tries to unload the truck five years later. And when he does, the police are like, hey, uh, yeah, we got a trigger here. This truck belongs to this missing guy. Let's go, let's go figure out if, you know, if we can find them. And when they do, it, the killer, Chichester, who's now Christopher Crow, 
just decides to jump into another identity and vanish. And he gets help from a girlfriend and some other folks, and that's what he does. He become and at that's when he decides that his new identity is going to be Clark Rockefeller. So, um, from the you know from the ashes of this investigation, which is now five years old, um, you know the body hasn't turned up, Linda hasn't turned up, and Christopher Chichester became Christopher Crow, who became Clark Rockefeller. That's a lot of facts for, you know, a detective or any detective, especially in a small town, to piece together and try to figure out. And, and it only becomes relevant again when the bones are discovered in the backyard. Have there, been, been, have there ever been any identification of Linda? No, never found. Okay, so um, it's just odd that he would bury one body but not the other. Well, he may have buried her somewhere else. Why? You killed both at the same time. It is a good... I mean, this is what makes the story so fascinating. Now, you've met this guy in person. Have you met this... Yeah, of course I have. I've met him in person. I've talked with him. And uh, um, so so, so the the detective theory, the homicide detectives, or the forest, or you know, somewhere between California and Greenwich, Connecticut. What an area. The, um, the, the theory of um, attorneys in the case at the time the murder trial took place was that Linda was somehow complicit, fled with Christian, Chris, Carl, Clark, whatever you want to call him, uh, and at some point he got rid of her and, um, again, you know, her body is somewhere between California and Connecticut. The, the third uh, supposition is that he killed her at the same time he killed John and buried her in the backyard and, you know, either buried her deep enough or well enough that, um, you know, the backhoe when it was digging up the pool that discovered, you know, and how John's body was discovered in the first place, never really found her body. And, um, you know, over the years, they've done, you know, a handful of sonar scans of this backyard looking for her. That Well, I mean, if you bury one body in the backyard, why not two? Right. Um, but, but, you know, if you ask now, if you ask Chris, like, hey, what happened to Linda? He says that his investigation revealed there's a woman in the Carolinas who um, is a horse trainer who, uh, you know, fits Linda's description, six foot two, redhead, uh, you know, over 200 pounds, who's training horses under an assumed name and will never resurface because she's worried about being implicated in her husband's murder. So there's four you know, possible outcomes for her. Um, now, when Chris was tried for the murder of John, he was not tried for the murder of Linda. Um, now, were they having so, an affair? I mean, you know, that's that's some speculation that that they were having an affair. That you know, there was some kind of a love triangle, and that John needed to be eliminated uh, from that. I think that if you ask Linda's friends. And if you ask the detectives, 
And if you ask the prosecutors if that's the case, they're going to say, nope, not the case at all. She hated that little guy in the, uh, that lived with, uh, in their house and wanted him to move because she wanted to take over the space that he was living in. Uh, and, and it was that that precipitated the murder of her husband and her potential murder, too. Now, when he went to, to trial, and this I found this unusual, the defense uh, attempted using an insanity defense. They witnesses uh, for the defense to testify that they diagnosed this guy with delusional disorder, grandiosity, narcissistic personality disorder, uh, and all as a result of trauma and abuse by his father. Usually, as you know, and maybe many people in our audience don't know, insanity defense is usually agreed upon by both the defense and the prosecution. It's not something that you like on TV where they bring it up and they fight about it. But in this case, it was brought up and they did fight about it. I found that very unusual. So, so he actually, so Burl, he had two trials. He had one for kidnapping his daughter, and that's where they, you know, trotted out this idea that this man's insane. But in California, um, there, there wasn't an insanity defense. There was a, what they call a third-party culpability defense. In other words, his defense was that Linda did the murder, and he was getting blamed for it. Oh. And he still um, maintained this to this day, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. And I think he's That's filed it. another appeal. Does he yeah, he's, he's filed appeals. And there's a, you know, California now has resentencing guidelines. Um, so, like, for example, back then a murder was 25 years to life, uh, which is kind of an indeterminate sentence. Uh, and now they do a lot of determinate sentencing. So, um, you know, somebody that gets... 25 years to life, like in his case, might not be eligible for parole until they hit 25 years in prison. And, you know, if a judge were to, like, look at the case and examine the current sentencing guidelines, they might say, oh, this is a 20-year case. And, you know, now you're eligible to have a parole hearing. So um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks who have been convicted of homicides, especially, like, in the post-three-strikes era in California, are going back to court and trying to get their um, sentences reduced um, due to the new guidelines. Well, we just had a case in the last couple of weeks where the defense was uh, marijuana intoxication, which absolved her of the stabbing of her boyfriend. Was it 27 times? Wow, that must have been some Yeah, yeah she got part. probation and community service. Like the Twinkie defense. I mean, it kind of is like the squeaky defense. This, the woman that Mark's talking about said that she smoked too much weed and, and it caused her to have a psychosis. And that psychosis, uh, um, you know, resulted in her stabbing her boyfriend to death. Uh, yeah. And I think, and I think that that was considered in her sentencing, right? Yes, yes, that was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll probably see more of that. I mean, you, I think that, you know, if you go back twenty years when uh, um, California's prisons were, you know, bursting at the seams, um, and the, the Supreme Court said, "Hey, you know, you guys got to fix this," 
California had a couple of ways that they could have fixed it. One was build more prisons. And I think that, uh, you know, that that's not really an option. So two is, okay, figure out ways to get people out of prison. Um, and there's been, you know, multiple legislative and uh, voter um, that. And one of them, 1170.6, which is a resentencing uh, motion that a lot of these guys use. I don't know if Rockefeller's uh, doing that. Um, I think he, honestly, I think he's pretty happy up in San Quentin. He uh, is, actually, according to uh, our mutual friend who's in San Quentin, who speaks to him in German. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And he told, you know, he said, like, hey, you know, he's doing just fine. You know, he's got, he's figured out a niche for himself, and, uh, you know, he's able to work his, uh, his con magic uh, on the other cons. Right. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, our friend said that, yeah, he's very likable. Uh, engaging conversationalist and uh, very platoon. And people yeah. like him. Yeah. Uh, another aspect. And, and, you know, he's also he's involved in, a, uh, in an art program up there uh, that they do in, I want to say it's in association with a, a group in Berkeley. But if you go online and you look for the artist formerly known as Clark Rockefeller, <laughs> you can see. Uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, can um, I really you search can see that? some of his some of his art. Ah, I will look that I, up. You know, on the on the outside, though, you know, in our world, there's art. a lot of people who um, worry about you know what happens on the day that he gets out. You know, is he going to go and extract revenge on friends that have turned against him? Is he? You know, is he going to, um, you know, develop some new persona and try to con the world into thinking that he's not the person that he is? Um, those are reasonable. Uh, cons- those are reasonable concerns. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, he is. A, he is a convicted killer, after all, uh, and you know, um, and, a, and a convicted kidnapper. So, you know, what happens to somebody? My my belief is that. You know, because he was here on a green card, and you know, and that second he gets out, he gets deported. Well, he'll be, then he'll be for pickings for him if they deport him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. You know, it's funny when he, he I, I talked to him one time about growing up in Germany, and I asked him like, "Hey, you know, did, did you fool people when you were a kid?" And he had this very elaborate story about you know, take, taking the street signs down, the directionals down in his neighborhood uh, or in his little town and changing them all up so that tourists, when they came there, who were looking at maps would get confused because they couldn't tell which street was pointing, you know, in which direction. <laughs> He's a nasty little kid. Now, i got a yeah. question for you. Uh, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm incorrect, that you have, because of your experience and your talents, you can pretty much tell when someone's BSing you. Uh, how was your response to talking to this guy in terms of his, if you saw him in person, his body language, etc.? Uh, could you tell when he's maybe giving you a line of, a line of BS? Well, that is such a great question. Um, yeah, I'm, so I, I think I'm pretty... Uh, 
and uh, I, I, and 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 like I already had background with this guy when I met him. You know, I mean, I've, I'd written most of a book. I talked to you know dozens of people who knew him. I knew his his stories in and out. So I'm sitting there in the county jail. You know, just like you see in the movie, there's the plexiglass. I'm on the phone. He's right. on the phone. Right. And and we're talking to each other. And he starts telling me a story about his collection of of Buick automobiles. And and I and I have this tiny pencil. You know, you're not supposed to have a pencil. And I had this little pencil that I snuck in, and I'm writing it down. And I'm fascinated by what he's telling me. And then suddenly, I just realized, like, oh, this dude's bullshitting me. He's telling me a total lie. <laughs> <laughs> and and but I I bought it and like literally bought it enough that I wrote you know a page of notes on his Buick collection and um, I said hey Chris you don't really have a Buick collection do you and and you know he just like just rather than like acknowledge that I caught him he just changed the subject of course yeah and really quickly in fact I think he changed the subject into telling me how he changed the street signs. Um, in in his German, uh, you know. So he was trying to misdirect you, misdirect his direction. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Pearl, that's very perceptive. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and you know, it, it, and that's the thing. Like, you know, as as uh, these guys that deal in true crime, we talk to a lot of people, and we talk to a lot of people on both sides of the law. You know, we, um, uh, and and usually the cons such as the mutual, the guy that we know mutually, they're pretty, they're pretty honest. I mean, they've come to, they're there for a reason and, and, you know, they need to do work, whatever kind of work it is, psychology, sociology, you know, being coming a good human again. And this guy's never, I'm not going to say never, but, you know, they're liars in a different way, right? They're emotional liars. Uh, it, well, they have to and, convince themselves first somehow. In order to be convincing, they have to be convinced. It's almost like you know an excellent actor playing a role and staying in character. Yep. But the, but you see, this guy is like beyond that, right? He's an emotional liar. He's a psychological liar. He's like he's like he, like I say, like I said early on here, he's able to like kind of figure out what one fact that he could tell you that's going to make you want to listen to everything that he has to say. And that, and that the end result of this is putting himself up on a pedestal so that, you know, that you, the peasant, look up to him and, and admire, like, his bearing, his breeding, and his battle. And, and I think that, that that's, the, that's the really, like, this whole, that's really the crux of this whole story. I know a guy, a pretty famous writer, a guy named Walter Kern. I've seen that movie with George Clooney. And uh, he lives in a small town in Montana. And uh, he and his wife rescued a Gordon Setter, a uh, very you know, uh, unusual breed of dog. And you know, before any of this was known, Clark Rockefeller reached out to Walter Kern in hopes of, you know, taking the Gordon Setter under his wing and nursing it back to health. And, um, and so Walter 
drove across the country from Livingston to, you know, Manhattan, met a guy that he presumed to be Clark Rockefeller, uh, handed over the dog, and then was treated to, like, the full Rockefeller story. Um, and, and Walter, he'll tell you that he believed it. You know, and Walter, Walter he's a, I'll tell you what about Walter. He's a hell of a journalist, and he's a hell of a writer, and he's a, he's a smart, Ivy League-educated guy. And, and he bought this story 100%. Um, you know, not knowing that he was dealing with somebody who, you know, had changed his name multiple times, who had murdered a few people, uh, who had, you know, taken on David Berkowitz's social security number. That's the one that amazes me. If you're going to take someone's social security number, you don't take the social security number of a serial. I mean, right? Why not? Like, I, I just think, like, if you're rolling, this is high stakes, bro. It's like you go to Vegas and 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 you keep and you keep rolling the dice and you keep hitting the pass line and you leave that you keep leaving that stack up there, right? And I think that's what he. I think like, you know, in some way he's that guy, right? That just keeps riding the the pass line on the craft table. Well, I think the piece of the puzzle you're missing, uh, Burrow, <clears throat> is the, the internal joy individual is receiving of doing from it. the yeah. con itself. Yeah, and the taking on the social security of a prominent criminal is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know what I mean? Moment for yeah. him internally, he is enjoying this and going here, go catch me. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Now I got to interject a little personal story here. There was a gentleman whose name I won't mention for the security and safety of his family that uh, I knew. It was a, he's uh, passed away now. It was a compulsive liar. And the fellow was giving me a ride home one night in his car. And I said, you know, you could have a great career working in a movie theater. He said, why is that? I said, because you're a great projectionist. (laughs) (laughs) And it pissed him off. And then all of a sudden, his entire demeanor changed. He was like a different person, and he said, Burl, I am a compulsive liar. I can't stop. Wow. And I said, why are you you admitting that to me? And he said, because I respect you. That's why I'm being honest. And then just as if someone changed his frequency of his vibration, he went back to the person he was a few minutes ago, and told me the most absurd, monstrous lie about my own daughter. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, Burrell, is that, I mean, think about, like, think about that, right? So he tells you, uh, I'm this huge con man, and now he's let down, he's kind of like opened the robe, right? And, you know, we, you don't realize he's closed the robe and gone back to being his own thing, and that's probably because that's how you work the con, Right? You like you, it's like it's like the Wizard of Oz. You let them see behind the curtain for a second, and then you think, okay, they're you know, oh, they're vulnerable. He's never going to lie to me again. And then boom, but lie. boom, he did immediately. And I could tell I mean, his yeah. whole vibration changed. You know, uh, his aura altered. It wasn't like it's like totally changing uh, identity at that moment. That moment <clears throat> of clarity 
where he admits it, and then he went right back into the other persona. That was the last time yeah. I ever had him give me a ride anywhere. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you think scary. of uh, think of uh, Annie Hall and uh, the ride back to the airport with Annie Hall's brother driving after he had admitted to uh, our intrepid uh, Nebish, you know, that he often fantasizes about driving into oncoming traffic and killing yeah. himself. <laughs> Wonderful. <clears throat> what, a, what a great reference. That is, <laughs> that's an awesome reference. Well, one there's, my, there's, there's one the, the one that I, I mentioned on the air that my daughter showed me. A, there's a Reddit, uh, there's a subreddit called Who's the Asshole? Am I the Asshole? Where you, Am I the Asshole? A-I-T-A. Yeah. Uh, and the, the guy who finally admitted to his girlfriend that when he had sex with her, he imagined her as being a giant cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought that their relationship was strong enough that she'd accept that. He was wrong. Well, any healthy sexual that's relationship a, has Kafka a fantasy S. element. In it. What's, what's that, Frank? I said that's Kafka-esque. <laughs> it is. That's, that's, that's more Mulholland Drive. Yeah. That the giant cockroach even had a name. He'd been fantasizing about sex with this giant cockroach ever oh. since, you know, puberty. Was that Joe's apartment? Yeah. And, was... and 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 he's and he's and this guy is reaching out to Reddit to ask them if he's the asshole. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they sent him a yeah. can of raid. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, I wanted to touch on the uh, the prosecution of our uh, get right on the our well. <clears throat> yes. And <laughs> we'll see if Mark lives. They the find show. bones in the grave, but there were a couple of other items that were in the grave that tied yeah. back to Clark or Christopher, case maybe. So, so the so this is really where you know forensic science is just you know <laughs> is such a help to police. It, the the body is. is um, that they find is encased in some plastic bags and um, under like, you know, different kind of lighting, you can see that these plastic bags came from the university of Wisconsin uh, in green Bay and uh, the university of Southern California. And um, the, one of the bags uh, came from the university of California and was only used during one semester um, in the school's entire history. So then you look at the history of, of our, our perpetrator, Chris Chichester, and, you know, he did attend the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay for a couple semesters. And uh, he also attended USC. He audited classes there during the semester in which that book bag was um, in common usage. So, uh, and these are bags that you get from the bookstore, right? So um, it was it was pretty telling to find a body, you know, with these two bags being used to conceal uh, the body, um, and having a perpetrator who circumstantially attended both of those schools at those times uh, is sure a convincing element in this entire story. And of course. The fact that he's driving the dead man's car doesn't hurt. Either. No, that doesn't look good. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it you know, it seemed to me that any competent defense attorney 
could easily blow as many holes into that that evidence as, as a shotgun could put. <clears throat> the fact that they were there it was because he was there, but it doesn't tie him directly to the crime. I mean, he could have left. She could have killed him. They're the bad. She used them. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, a, a competent defense attorney, he had very competent defense attorneys. He had top defense attorneys, Jeffrey Denner and uh, um, Brad. I can't remember Brad's last name. But the thing is, it's like, you know, ultimately, competent or not, you got to convince the jury that, that, that your version of the truth is um, a more plausible version of the truth than what the prosecution is presenting. And I, I have a, a sideline question here. We had you on the show a few years ago when you wrote the book Name Dropper, which was about the same guy. Same guy, yeah. Uh, is, is there a difference between Name Dropper and the book Becoming Clark Rockefeller? There's, yes, there is. So, so, um, and I have you to thank for this, Pearl. Well, thank you. Uh, I don't know why, but you <laughs> well, you know, a couple of years. So, when I wrote Name Dropper, uh, um, I, I wrote it and got it and got it published, and it happened before there was a trial. Um, and you know, I had a narrative that was kind of based on, you know, some court documents and some interviews, and. What I did was I wrote it in such a way that at the very beginning of the book, you knew who was killed and who the killer was. And I never, I'll never forget going down to Encino and being on the show with, uh, with you and Mark and I think Howard, um, and, uh, and also an injury or accident attorney. Um, and my sons were there with me, and they'll never forget it either for reasons of their own. Yeah, 1-800 um, and, and you told me, like, hey, you, you, you're you a good writer, but if you want to write true crime, you got to, like, you know, not reveal who did it on page 10. So, <laughs> so, I, so during the pandemic, um, the book went out of print, and I, I went to the publisher and bought it back. And um, I was, you know, I kind of, like, thought of a lot about what you said, Burl. And I began reaching out to people that I had talked to in 2012. I said, hey, you know, I'm redoing this book. Is there an update? Do you know something new? And then I, re, you know, I, I rewrote it in such a way that um, I was able to you know, save the, um, the big reveal until page 70 and um, and construct a story, I, I think, that was more up-to-date in terms of you know, what happened and, um, uh, and how, it, how it played out. And, and, I, and I also, by the way, thank Taylor Swift <laughs> because he bought all her albums back from, you know, her record company and re-recorded them and, you know, owned the rights to them. And uh, I kind of felt like this was like my way of being like a Taylor You're Swift. You're kind of the male Taylor Swift of true crime. Instead of being yeah, the demon well, dog of true crime, the Taylor Swift. Okay, all right, all right. okay. Which which tight end are you dating? <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, which I believe was a B flat, the book is called "Becoming Clark Rockefeller" by Frank C. Gerardo Jr. Buy it, read it, believe it. It's fascinating. <laughs> 